So it's like, are hmm. we talking about the Times Square of Las Vegas or the couple different Times Squares of Las Vegas where yeah. no local would go? Right, yeah. Disgusting. And that's not what I think of when I think of New York. I don't think of Times Square, but, but, but tourists do. And I wonder if we're falling into that same thing. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode about Las Vegas travel is the outgrowth of a keynote speech I gave last month. I was talking about how the first book I wrote, a travel memoir about traveling the United States by van when I was 23 years old, was roundly rejected by agents and publishers, but how writing that unpublished book proved to be essential to my later career. Here's an outtake from that speech that was recorded by a member of the audience. I took one of those chapters from my failed USA book, submitted to a place called salonmagazine.com during the, the dial-up internet era. They sort of fancied themselves the New Yorker of the internet, which was a brand new thing back then. And I got it published. My Las Vegas story was published in salonmagazine.com in 1998, 25 years ago. Indeed, since last month marked the 25th anniversary of my first byline as a travel writer, I wanted to revisit that old Las Vegas travel story and see how its take on the city held up after a quarter of a century. Joining me in this conversation is my frequent Deviate guest, Ari Shafir, who's had plenty of his own experiences in Vegas, both as a tourist and a comedian. Together, we talk about the idiosyncrasies of visiting a city like Vegas, which was more or less designed to attract tourists with the lure of entertainment and gambling and buffet food. We talk about how, as introverts who are faintly nervous at the idea of gambling, neither of us ever manages to have a very good time when we go to Vegas. We talk about how the city has a way of attracting people who give themselves permission to do things they'd never do at home, something that is almost a credo of Las Vegas. As usual, when Ari comes onto my show, our conversation tends to ramble on in a good way. And the more we disparage a certain idea of Vegas, the more we realize we're probably talking about the very limited side of a city that can at times be hard to experience in a meaningful way. Eventually, we posit the question all travelers ask of the places they visit, which is what it would be like to live there instead of just passing through. Our conversation ultimately drifts into a philosophical discussion of the idea of luck and how what we see in retrospect as luck is often the result of things like preparation and hard work and good timing. I begin by reading Ari my old 1998 essay and talking about the way one's early career is always in conversation with your later work. Let's listen in. So Ari, eventually I'm going to read you uh, the essay, my first published essay from 25 years ago this month, 1998. It's kind of crazy. It's about Las Vegas, and we'll get into that. Um, I actually, it's from a trip I took in 1994. It's from a failed book um, that I tried to write in 1995 and 96. So there's it, it a lot of backstory here. Um, but before I read the essay itself, I'm just curious to know, do you have any relationship with your early work? Or is the comedy you did in the very early part of your career just something you never have a relationship or think about anymore? I, I think about it just because I see I'm around, unlike writers, I'm around early version of myself like all the time. Right. These open micers, they overlap with, you know, like legendary headliners, you know? Like yeah. I, I'll be around Chris Rock and Chappelle sometimes. And so will guys 10 years or 15 years my, my junior. Right. So you just recognize it and see it, but I don't have to see the works itself. I I, I did find a box of old uh, columns I wrote for the University of Maryland newspaper. Wow! Uh, and you can get an inkling. You can get an inkling of how like what a degenerate I am. <laughs> <laughs> my, my early sense of humor. So was it was it a humor column? Were you a humorist for the University of Maryland? Yeah, 
Yeah, okay. yeah. It wasn't like covered in sports or anything. Yeah, but right. it was just like a, a bit callous. I'm like, oh, I could see, I could see where this was headed. It's a, there's a there's a um, Dali museum in St. Pete, uh-huh. and um, it goes chronologically. It has a ton of works, uh-huh. um, and you see him start with just like a, a like a whatever it's called a realistic um, fruit bowl. And then, right. like after like seven or eight years, it starts to get a little droopy on the apples. And you're right. like, "Oh, here we go, here we go." Here's 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 him. Well, I think all this stuff counts. You know that you have to sort of write the sort of generic or crappy version of an essay early on. And you know this, I tra- yeah. I, I lived in a van for ni- 1994. I traveled around America. I thought I was going to write the new on the road, and then. 1995, 96, I just kept rewriting and rewriting and reading, rewriting, and I learned some hard lessons. And even pulling up this essay to read to you now, Ari, I found myself going in and like changing the wording of the sentences. It was just too wordy and I had to stop because it's like that's wow. not what I wrote 25 years ago. But as a writer, I'm compulsively editing what I was doing before. Wow, yeah. So I think I'll read it to you now. It's it's like a 1,500-word essay, and then, then we can, we can – um, you know, sort of think about the essay a little bit and then dig into the experience of Vegas itself. One thing about this, it'll come up in the essay, but it was such a dirtbag approach to Vegas. And I was living in a van in the parking lot of the Sands Hotel, and my values were clearly dirtbag, vagabond, or 23-year-old Rolf. Um, and and so, uh, so here goes. It's called The Mystical High Church of Luck. I understand this now. Things don't happen in Vegas. Things are happened in Vegas. All actions in the town are so meticulously predicted and orchestrated that spontaneity itself exists only as the ghost of compulsion. Perhaps this can explain why I rolled into Las Vegas with $5 and ended up losing $100. My plan was simple. My friend Jeff and I were going to conquer Las Vegas by being cheap bastards. We knew that Las Vegas is a brilliantly marketed town that has taken the American dream distilled it into a cheery doctrine of potential wealth, and replaced the dismal idea of hard work with a voodoo religion called luck. Skeptical of luck and its dogmas, we decided to milk the city for all of its gaudy entertainment value and vanish like the proverbial mouthful of sailors' lies come dawn. We each took $5 from a kitty we were saving for Mardi Gras, jammed our pockets with lukewarm cans of leftover Pabst Blue Ribbon, and locked up our van in the Hacienda lot at the south end of the Strip. The act of walking the Strip itself was delightfully entertaining, since it involved plowing through a gauntlet of scruffy men who had positioned themselves every few feet on the sidewalk to pass out glossy flyers for strip bars, private dancers, and Nye County whorehouses. In spots Of heavy pedestrian traffic, the sidewalks of the Strip looked like lunatic fencing contests, with brochure pimps tirelessly lunging and fainting their flyers amid the tourists. Jeff and I trudged all the way up the Strip and each blew $2.99 of our $5 budget by gorging ourselves to the point of agony on lukewarm cuisine at the infamous Circus Circus Lunch Buffet. We spent the hellish ensuing hour digesting and watching tightrope unicyclists at the free Circus 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 upstairs. Once we had fully recovered, we came back downstairs to stroll the casino and pretend to gamble, since it is standing policy in Las Vegas for casinos to give free drinks to anyone who is gambling. Jeff and I bellied up to the dollar slots and pulled on levers for 15 minutes, but the barmaids didn't seem to be impressed. And so Jeff sent me to the bar to get some glasses so we could drink our Pabst. The bartender was a flashy young guy who was suavely trying to console a young, firm-bodied barmaid who stood two stools down from me. 
Chin up, babe, he said to her, winking sympathetically and biting his lower lip. They'll all come around with those tips. You're an angel. Just keep showing them that smile of yours. You'll make them think you're their special one. You'll never know who might give you a $100 bill. Not used to hearing someone my own age call someone else my own age, babe, I assumed that the bartender was jokingly talking like a cheesy Vegas person in an attempt to improve her spirits. This really is a circus, isn't it? I said to the bartender once the barmaid was gone. What's that, pal? He said spunkily, not really looking at me. Working here is like the postmodern version of running away to join the circus, I said, thinking I was being witty with him. You know, the greatest show on earth, only we're the clowns? How's the luck today, champ, he said with a toothy smile, acting more like I'd pulled an invisible voice box string labeled conversation than made a specific statement. His non sequitur caught me off guard. Um, I haven't really started yet. Gotta put that trust in Lady Luck, he grinned like a chipper zombie. What'll it be for you? I'll take a couple glasses of water. The bartender shot me a stunned and somewhat disgusted look. It took him about 20 minutes to get the water. Drinking contraband Pabst Blue Ribbon in the Circus Circus Casino is not nearly as entertaining as it sounds. So Jeff and I backtracked down to the strip, looking to slum poolside at one of the glitzy hotels. Unfortunately, security at places like the Luxor and the MGM Grand is comparable to that of the White House, so we had to settle for the outdoor veranda of the golf-themed Sheraton Desert Inn. Sitting in our underwear in an outdoor jacuzzi, we drank the rest of our Pabst and smiled dumply <laughs> as the cleated retirees clicked their way to the adjoining golf course. Somewhere in there, we caught a buzz and elected to gamble our remaining $2 away. Damp and smelling of chlorine, Jeff and I trudged over to our dream casino, a nickel slot joint that advertised 18 donuts for $1.50. We reasoned that if we had any luck at all at the nickel slots, we could cash out in donuts and triumphantly ride out of Las Vegas. We weren't there five minutes before I hit the jackpot and won $30 in nickels. Somewhere up in high heaven, in what is no doubt their most thrilling pissing contest since Job, God and the devil put a wager on me, and this time the devil won. I took the $30, gave half of it to Jeff, and swaggered into the Mirage Casino and set up camp at the quarter videos poker machines. Inexplicably, my streak of good fortune continued. Full house, flush, three of a kind. The corners kept showering down into my tray. Chatterhead that I am, I metamorphized into obnoxious winner, yelling loudly and slapping high fives with Jeff. As if on cue, a seductively clad barmaid showed up to offer me free drinks. Somewhere around my third or fourth Heineken, I hit a straight flush, turning four quarters into $50 worth of change. By overall Vegas standards, my jackpot was jack squat, but I celebrated like a high roller. A couple cocktails later, I was sitting at the dollar video poker machines at the Treasure Island Casino, shoving my last token into the slot. It had taken me about 10 minutes to lose everything I'd won at the quarter and nickel machines. Still, I had been born again hard into the mystical high church of luck. I was convinced of my immortality. When my last token bore no fruit, I haughtily denounced the treasure island, reloaded to the tune of $100 at the conveniently located ATM, and took a tram to the Caesar's Palace. I was broke again after about 15 minutes. Jeff steered me away from another conveniently located ATM and took me to the bar for a cappuccino. Sipping our coffee, we exchanged what we hoped were meaningful glances with a couple of girls across the bar. 
We didn't have the courage to actually go up and talk to them since we weren't up to explaining how our place was parked in the Hacienda parking lot. (laughs) Plus, we smelled like chlorine. Sobriety heightened my sense of moral indignation at what I'd become. Too proud to blame myself, I started to spout bitter rhetoric about Las Vegas. Where does all this money go, I asked an uninterested Jeff. Do people live here? How much does that guy dressed as Caesar get paid? What about the guy with the unicycle at Circus Circus? Where does he come from? Did he dream of being the Circus Circus unicycle guy as a kid? Is this (laughs) self-actualization for him? Is there a hierarchy for unicycle guys in Las Vegas? Do they belong to a labor union? Is there really all that much difference between going to work every day to do tricks on a unicycle and stocking food in a supermarket? Have you ever looked at a photo of those chorus girls? Where do they come from? Why do they all look alike? Are they clones? Is there some town out in North Dakota that breeds chorus girls specifically for Las Vegas? Are the chorus girls classified as livestock in Nevada? And why are there so many performers who impersonate dead people in this town? Why not do a celebrity impersonation of me or you or those girls over there? Why this obsession with dead people? Is this heaven? Is this hell? If so, where are the normal dead people? Where are my ancestors? Is there anything original or alive in this entire city? Is everything here nostalgia? Are we supposed to already be feeling nostalgic about tonight? Was I supposed to be feeling nostalgic when I said that? I want a casino where the bartenders wear t-shirts and rubber flip-flop sandals and give you warm beer and cans and the barmaids dress up in cut-off jeans and fuzzy bedroom slippers and bring you Halloween candy as consolation when you go on a losing streak. And everyone who wants to gamble has to first go up to a microphone and tell the story of their first kiss. And people only get free drinks if they make ironical allusions to the laws of entropy or the Articles of Confederation or the Pauline definition of love. Shit, Jeff, let's open the place ourselves. We'll call it Jeff's. Or better yet, we'll just hang up an electronic reader board out front, and whenever a customer wants to change the name of the place, we'll change it. What do you think, man? <laughs> Jeff didn't even pause. I think it's time we left Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good um, time in Vegas. So that very specific time. It, it was probably the best time I've been there. I've figured out I've been there like four other times, and it's always been dumb. It was dumb the first time I went in a way that was very, very uh, vividly evoked by sort of the dirtbag living in a van aspect of that. Did any of that ring familiar? Have you been there? Yeah, a- I, I haven't. I haven't thought about this kind of Vegas in so long. It really brought me back to that. So yeah. Broke college, like on a on a real budget, looking for bargains. I really haven't thought about that kind of Vegas in a long time. This this really painted a picture. How many times have you been to Vegas? Do you even know? Th- that number is. Too many. Huh. Um, too, too many starts at two. Okay. In Vegas. <laughs> um, so, so how many dirtbag experiences? Like, obviously, presumably you've performed there as a comedian or gone there a lot. with friends. But how many dirtbag uh, poor guy times did you go to Vegas? I probably did, did dirtbag Vegas two or three times. I started going to Atlantic City, which is a, is a terrible clone of Las Vegas, which you think is like interesting because I'm an East Coast guy. Right. And then you get to Vegas, you're like, oh, oh, I get what Atlantic City was. It's just a blueprint huh. for this place. Right. But I, I used to go a lot with uh, Joe Rogan would go there for the UFC, and it's, the company would get uh, a free companion ticket for him. Okay. Um, so I went kind of in luxury after a while. So was it just and you was, and Ro- – did you get your own room, and did you hang out with Joe? Got or did you just- yeah, I got my own room. He, yeah, I could get tickets to the UFC. Yeah. Um, 
and, and then I got my own room. I got my own flight. We'd go together. We'd eat really nice steak. You know, he was on Fear Factor at the time. He had money. Right. We 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 live well. We go to nightclubs. Um, it, it just like it's a totally different version of Vegas than than what you just described, which I also right. did with my college friends or my high school friends. We did it in college. We went for March Madness, and it was all like, "Where's the best bargain? How do we get into a nightclub? Um, we got to go for dinner before. Let's like let's." And that feeling of losing money is such a fucking shitty feeling. Yeah. Of having something losing it. One time I went to visit my dad. I was a broke comic. I went to visit my dad. I was there for a conference. And so we stayed at a hotel slash motel, like outside the strip. He gave me like, I think 600 bucks for my, for my life. You nice. Know? Okay. okay. Yeah. And I was, and then I lost 500 of it on the way back. I stopped right. for, to pee. Oh, and Jesus. Then, yeah. And then I was like, well, let me just play one handed blackjack. And then, and then the rest of that drive back to LA is so shitty when you're like, the fuck did I do? Yeah. It's crazy because like your 50 bucks is the same as somebody else's 50,000 bucks. Well, see, that's what blew me away when I first went. I didn't realize that some of those, that like most of the chips were like $100 chips. Like they don't yeah. have like 25 cent chips. Like the, the, <laughs> like the buy-in. And I think in my subsequent trips to Vegas, I just assumed that I would lose all of whatever I gambled. And I sort of wrote off fairly decent sums, like hundreds of dollars, just with the assumption that that's just the price of entrance for certain experiences in Vegas. Dur- during your during your Rogan years right. in Vegas, did you have fun? Yeah. Did you did you sort of like the Vegas life? Okay, so there was some moments where I did have fun, but I'm I'm not I'm an introvert. Uh, Susan Cain has this great book about introversion, quiet. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's called. And, um, and it, it just broke through to me. She goes, have you ever been in a situation where you think you're supposed to be having a better time than you are? Mm. And, and I immediately pictured every nightclub I went to in Vegas with, with Rogan and his, his, his posse or whatever at the time. Right. And it was just like, this sucks. And then I remember going, like 145 going out to smoke cigarettes. I would smoke a lot more just to buy time. Mm. Um, and then I was like, hey, when's the last call? And the guy just, the bouncer just laughed at me. because yeah i thought i'd be free soon (laughs) and he's like sun up or a little after sun up and i was like no because i couldn't afford the cab back to the hotel we were staying at um yeah and and rogan couldn't have even comprehended that that if i wanted to leave i couldn't (laughs) like uh yeah i was like i don't know twenty dollars take a cab but he's like yeah it's out of my range the second time i went to vegas was part of a vehicle expedition that eventually became a tv show for like Direct TV and the National Adventure Channel over National Geographic Adventure Channel overseas, and yeah. like the filmmaking crew, I don't know if you've ever been like followed around by a documentary film crew, but they had very yeah. specific ideas of what we should do, including going to nightclub. I, I wrote it down in my notes here someplace. It, what is the name of the nightclub? Oh, it was the Ghost Bar at the Palms Hotel. I didn't want to I've go been to the, there. I've you, been there. Okay. That one. Okay. Does that have like a big, top, like a top thing where you can go out on the balcony and look down? Probably. Basically, what yeah, happened is I've been there. I've been to that one for sure. Yeah. Ugh, is the answer, but yeah. How, what did you think of it? Well, the thing of it is, is that I wouldn't have independently chosen to go there, but the film crew wanted us to go there, and I don't know what talk to girls and do stuff that like the douche guys on the film crew would have done in our situation. So yeah. we we got me and two other people from the expedition got mic'd up. 
you know, we're like a travel expedition. We're going around the world. Vegas is just, we're there for the SEMA Auto Show, which is a convention, which is a whole other category of Las Vegas. But um, so we got right. mic'd up and then they wouldn't let us inside because of it for insurance reasons. Like we hadn't planned ahead. They didn't want us into the ghost bar. But while we were standing there with the film crew, like everybody in line were either jealous or calling us douchebags because we had mics on. And it was clear, wow. they thought, this is like, this is in 2003, so it was like peak reality TV. And so they thought we were like on an MTV show or something. And so they were they either wanted to be our friends or they, they just thought that we were idiots and we were going to look like morons on MTV. But then we got kicked out and I was much like you, um, <laughs> wanting to go home from, from Rogan's posse. I was so relieved that I didn't have to go to Ghost Bar on camera and try to pretend like I liked it, right? Yeah, Vegas is false there is no such thing from from the from the just the history of it it's built on a desert it's not it's the it's orlando there is no natural you know what i mean like like um in texas it's a lot of mexicans so the culture is mexican based tex-mex is a food that derived from a real history Right. there's nothing there there were just snakes the way it started was was from zero Right. Yeah, 1905, when I was doing my research, I realized that it didn't, wasn't even a town until 1905, and it was because of the railroad. Oh. And then 1931, it's not even, like basically when gambling, when, when Nevada legalized gambling, that's when Vegas actually became the place that we know it. It started to become the place we know it today. That's less than 100 years ago. So. Yeah, right. So there's no history. So it's, it's history is false. It's everything about it is built up to be this false thing. So it, it just sells people on the idea that you're going to have this experience. So this nightclub, I think very few people really want to go to those. And they have them in their own towns. Right. But they're made to look like movie versions of what a nightclub would be. Women dancing in these cages that are suspended from the ceiling with flames coming out. It's, it's a Matrix-level experience. And the whole thing is even based in it's too much. There's statues in the, in the lobbies. I, I was going to say, I was going to bring up Gaudi. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. The architect. Because I, all, all I knew is I would go to Vegas. I hadn't been to Barcelona, so I didn't really know the architect yet. Um, and I was like, this place is gaudy. It's so gaudy. And then you see the source material for that word. Beautiful sculptures and parks and, 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 and wrought iron fences that are all curved and stuff in Barcelona. And you're like, oh, I see where it comes from. But it's, it's, it's morphed into an, sort of an evil way where it's just big for the sake of big. They're, they're selling the Rat Pack, but it's there's no Rat Pack there anymore. Yeah. They're selling you this idea that you're going to be part of this historical Vegas, but it's really just fat people from the Midwest and flip-flops pushing their fucking fat kids in strollers at 2 a.m. Right. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. It's Do you think Vegas is like a cruise ship without the sea or a cruise ship's Vegas without the land? Or is that a leading question? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a huge overlap. Right. And going to that casino is like, I mean, that's where they make their money. You walking in to go to the bathroom and leaving $500 poor or $50 or or $5. And it works because I think there's this sense of resignation. On my subsequent trips, I just accepted that I would lose. Yeah. Yeah. The money's gone already. So how long could, that's why I like switch to poker at some point because you pay limit poker. It's like, well, I could play an hour and a half and lose 200 bucks or blackjack. It could be seven minutes. 
Right. Yeah. Did you have a sense for Vegas when you were growing up and you were out on the East Coast? Did you have any friends that went there or how did you what did you what did you feel Vegas was when you were a kid or a teenager? Yeah, I mean, that it was the Rat Pack stuff. It was from the <laughs> movies. You know, it was it was like this is class and style tuxedos. It was kind of felt like you're supposed to wear a tuxedo. Interesting. But none of that was real. Uh, I mean, when you mentioned Mardi Gras, Vegas to Mardi Gras, those are two really good. They're almost similar. Huh. You ever see Easy Rider? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of that. The movie? The movie, or, yeah. Yeah, the movie. Oh, oh, I saw it during the pandemic lockdown, and I was uh. like, I don't know how I never saw it before. It's, it, it, it's like, it's some, uh, it, it like... Affected me. I loved, really, I loved it. really, yeah. yeah. I did, did. You not think it was incoherent? It, it feels to me like a movie that was made by guys who are seriously on drugs. Maybe because I I do so many drugs, I could <laughs> <laughs> I can't figure out what they're saying. Yeah, there was some stuff where they were just like, oh, "We're not selling this line as the character saying it. We're selling this line as philosophy that we're just putting in the character's mouth." But, huh, huh. Okay, but it's not. But yeah, some of it was like. Oh, he's not talking about their experience. He's talking about the 60s in general. Okay, okay. I might you know, have to go back to but, that movie because I before I started traveling in America, I watched it for inspiration. And it, maybe because I didn't do drugs, it just sort of confused me. That's interesting. You said it before. I saw it you know, 20 years into stand-up comedy into a version of that life that you huh. have also. Huh. Um, and, and it's that. It's get off the – do your own thing. But but, um, but it's it's evocation of New Orleans reminded you of Vegas somehow, right? So it's such an it was an old Mardi Gras. It was like before this like yes, yeah. um, capitalization of Mardi Gras happened. The version of I saw because I'd already been to Mardi Gras. I was like, oh, that Easy Rider Mardi Gras is nothing like what I saw, right? You know, right. it was just like a real party, yeah. Um, and Vegas was a real Vegas, and then it becomes like at the end of uh, was it Goodfellas um, or Casino? Where he goes, Vegas isn't the same now. It's all for families and, you know, yeah, um, it's safe and there's no cr- crime anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, but they're still selling that old version of it. It's funny how um, d- the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Is that a Rat Pack era thing or is that sort of a new uh, nightclub on the top of a hotel era thing? Yeah, I think it's later. I think it's I think it's that the the nightclub on the you know it's it's Santa it, where they're selling the idea of Santa Claus being from the you know eleven hundreds and then you realize it's just Coca Cola right like but right before we were born you know right. so we just assume it was always been there yeah yeah what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas it's like the Rat Pack didn't I just keep saying them that's why I picture that kind of thing they they weren't saying that they were just doing wild shit. Yeah. No, I, I I think it's interesting that you bring in Mardi Gras in New Orleans because to me, um, New Orleans feels like the original what happens there stays there place. And mm-hmm. I, I've had way more fun in New Orleans than in Las Vegas. Like I, yeah, the, yeah. the music clubs and, and the dive bars in New Orleans just are more comfortable to me as a fellow introvert than, um, than uh, Las Vegas. I don't know if you have a similar experience. Yeah, they're real. But that's the thing. They're real. That's the, it's going to always come back to that. Vegas is gaudy and not gaudy, you know, even though the word, it's just different than the thing. So in New Orleans, it's just a cool local neighborhood bar. Right. Vegas makes it's it's like Abu Dhabi. It makes a version of what a cool neighborhood bar would be. Yeah. It, it's, you know, those mall cities. Yeah. That are just like it's just stores. No one actually lives in them, but it's made to look like a city yeah. or a town, you know. And like this is nothing. That's what Vegas is. It's nothing. 
Now, when I went to Dubai, I felt a, a sort of an echo of Vegas. Um, that's, that's the only part, the city in that part of the world I've been to, but, but Dubai felt very mall-like in the way that evokes Vegas. I, yeah, actually, they built a, they built a, an island that's made to look like a palm tree. Yeah. It's like, what is this? You can't just do that. Well, the thing about Vegas, too, I mean, we're you and I are both vagabonding travelers um, who've been we've hung out in Paris together, but there's like a Paris in Vegas. There's a Venice in Vegas. Mm-hmm. There's, um, a, you know, a freaking Camelot. There's a Rio, there's a Rome called Caesar's palace. So having traveled to these actual places, presumably you've been most of the, to most of those actual places, maybe with the exception being Camelot. Um, how does it, what is it like to go to, to these hotels for you now? I mean, does it, is it? Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'm hitting with more memories now because I, I, one of the early bookings was at the Riviera, which they just tore down. Um, um, and it was, it was, it was a full week in Vegas. You made a thousand dollars. It was really a lot of money. Uh Um, drive out there. And I remember my buddy, Steve Renazzisi, his dad came to visit and took us all for like a buffet at the, at the Paris, I think. Okay. Um, his dad is now dead of buffets, pretty much. But, but um, rest but, uh, in peace. Yeah, yeah, rest in peace. He kept just kept going up. I was like, oh, I miss this, I miss that. And we're like, oh, yeah, you could eat this much. But I remember seeing the sky, and it looked like clouds, but it looked like real clouds. Was that the Paris or the Venetian? One of those. Yeah, I don't know. And, Maybe the Venetian. Yeah, but I just remember thinking, like, this is so cool because I was a you know twenty six year old classless. It just like seemed cool because it was it was new and big, yeah. Uh, but but now like I'm only into like, in terms of like the architecture, the Bellagio type places where it's like, is there any real art or, or, or like Aria? I think they started swapping it for like a 35 year old upperly mobile person, right? Who has some doesn't want to be around fanny packs. Well, it's it's funny you talk about feeling classless. Um, and then my first experience, which I just read you an essay form, is very much a dirtbag twenty-three-year-old. But I think there's a there's an there's a working-class layer to Las Vegas. Like when I was growing up in, in Wichita, I knew people who went to Vegas who never went anywhere else, who still don't have passports, but but Vegas yeah. was their fancy place to go, and yep. they had less money than my family in many cases, but they spent way more money on their vacation in Vegas than we were comfortable spending, and that was just how it was. And actually, there's a quote. I found some quotes to for this interview, and one is from Dave Hickey. It's an essay called A Home in the Neon, and he says, half the pickup trucks stolen in Arizona, Utah, Montana, and Wyoming are routinely recovered in casino parking lots, and the vast majority of the population arises every morning morning absolutely delighted to escape to have escaped hometown america and the necessity of chatting with mom over the back fence and so i think that there's a there's this idea for a certain kind of american that vegas feels classy it feels fancy it feels like the dream life and it's better than whatever small town america or wichita kansas or whatever have you and it feels like yeah, this, that, this is the buffet is, level of vegas right yeah and you're taking a peter pan bus to get there to have this class yeah you know, so it's like that's not you. I remember an old episode of uh, of uh, Roseanne where they were all going, and and Dan Connor Connor was was talking about his system and how he's going to like take it, and that was like the version of Middle America going to big. We have this, we have our vacation money. Yeah, uh, the yeah. dream is to win, but the money's already set aside for our yearly vacation to Vegas. You know, cheap hotel, buffets, all you can eat nineteen ninety nine or nine ninety nine or one ninety nine, whatever it is to to make it 
to make it work. And then it's just this dream. They're selling a dream. It's actually hard to write about. Like I've been keeping notes about Vegas for a long time, thinking I would write about Vegas and sort of yeah. make fun of it and sort of reveal its inauthenticity. And then the more I read about Vegas, the more I realized that every writer goes to Vegas and they sort of have nothing to work with. Like they go and right. it's like, it's like it, there's no there there, right? So yeah. Um, I mean, even even Hunter Thompson had to had to. Uh, thank God there was a motorcycle race. Well, yeah, you know? <laughs> or he'd have no excuse to even go. Yeah, it's like Vegas, in its own weird way, is smarter than writers' ability to write about it. Here's another quote from Dave Hickey's essay. He says, "The deficiency of secrets and the economy of rules drives writers crazy when they come to Vegas. They come to write about the city, and they are trained in in-depth analysis. They have ripped the lid off the off seamy scandals." Um, by getting behind the scenes, and in Vegas is invisible to them. They see the lights, of course, but they end up writing stories about white people who are so unused to regulating their own behavior that they gamble away the farm, get drunk, throw up on their loafers, and wind up in custody within six hours of their arrival. <laughs> yeah. So it feels like there's just these cliches, the fakeness, sort of, it's a place where, where, where like repressed people give themselves permission to do things. Yeah. And then because of, of, of uh, Fear and Loathing, you have people trying to recreate Fear and Loathing. Okay. There's a there's a movie with Jamie Foxx and uh, the guy from Brokeback Mountain. Okay. The live one. Right, um, right. Gyllenhaal? Gyllenhaal? <laughs> um, yeah, Gyllenhaal. And they're, and they're snipers in, in uh, the Gulf War. Okay. And they haven't been able to kill anybody yet. Uh-huh. And the war's almost over. And they're just like, we're trained to kill people from afar and we don't get the chance. And he goes, there's nothing, we're not, we're just living in the shadow of, of Vietnam. He goes, we're even using Vietnam songs. They were, they were playing like all along the Watchtower or something like that. That's not even our song. That's from the fucking 60s. Right, yeah. Um, and it's just, it's like, you're being, you're not making your own way. You're you're living in someone else's. And that's all of what Vegas is. So as a writer, you go there trying to write something. It's like, you already have these preconceived notions. You're yeah. not writing about a small town in Thailand that you just discover on your own. You're going in to either intentionally not write the story everyone did or to rewrite the story everyone did. Just sucks. It's just so <laughs> well, fucking gross. Every time I walk in there now, it's like the smell, the lights, the sound, the losses. I want to dig into that more because I've also felt the exact same thing, sort of revulsion. And it might be a little bit unfair to Vegas. Maybe not. Maybe Vegas doesn't care. Probably Vegas doesn't care. But I, but you know, the travel writer parts of me, part of me wants to think what am I missing? And it's possible that I'm not missing anything that that sort of um roll around the waist sort of has had too much to drink passing it on the street aspect, losing money aspect of Vegas is what's true. Um but I'm curious like there's the Rat Pack myth, which is very sort of what Vegas wishes it still was. But then there's the fear and loathing myth, which is maybe mm-hmm. closer to what Vegas is. But then there's also from the aughts, there's the hangover myth. And I have a friend right. who's, who's um, who her sister works. Uh, she had it like majored in tourism management and she had an internship at the Caesars. And like every sixth guy in the aughts would come in and ask if this was the real Caesars palace that like, Every every uncreative douchey person comes in and makes jokes from the hangover because that is the experience they were looking for after that Zach Galifianakis movie. Damn, exactly. Trying to live it something else, but it's not. I had a friend who owned um a record store in, in um Venice. Um Venice 
California, Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And they had to put, and it was an independent record store, and they had to post after um, High Fidelity came out. Oh, um, right. They had yeah. to post in the door, we're not High Fidelity, stop bringing it up. Right. Yeah. Like, it was just like, you're in here for some experience you saw in the movies. It's just get a record or don't. Well, it makes me think that it must have been a problem for every feminist bookstore in Portland after Portlandia, right? You know, there's certain. Oh, yeah, a billion percent. Right. It's like this tourism, this, this like tourism of the past. Yeah. But you, that you, you become a victim. It's like all the people who go to Dubrovnik for Game of Thrones, you know, or Morocco for Star Wars, that you, you, you sort of become a prisoner of people's idea of what the place should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually would be a good idea for a column. Like, like look, searching for something that, that some, had already been done and, and, and like reliving that. It must happen everywhere. Yeah, but Vegas feels specifically yeah. beholden to this because because of the idea that there's no there there. I'm, I'll quote you another essay. It's by Richard Todd. He says, Vegas provides one of the pleasures that the more elevated travel sometimes fails to provide. It asks for a response. No one wastes any time looking for the real Vegas because no one feels intimidated by the culture it represents. To be here is to be in a place that is unafraid of its worst self. It revels in disconnection and incoherence. It invites us to do the same and thus provides a holiday from our effort to make sense of the places we are in. But then the holiday ends and we realize afresh how much we want the places that make sense. <laughs> so it feels like, are you filling a bottle of water or something? Are you washing dishes? Yeah, how did you get that? Okay, no. I, can, I can just hear it. I can just hear it. Wow. <laughs> These headphones are too good. So like, so, like, you also have to look at the poverty if you're really looking at what Las Vegas is. What we're right. talking about is the, the Strip and, and Old Vegas. Right. But no one's actually thinking of, like, the pool halls four miles away and well, the, the crime and the grime. Well, t- to be honest, there's probably some listeners right now who are infuriated because we're just talking about the obvious aspects of Vegas, like right. e- either Fremont Street or whatever that's called, or the Strip, when in fact some people might have, and I, I encourage those listeners, send me a, a voice message, deviateatrolfpots.com, and give us your retort if you have one, because actually I don't know, I don't have a lot of friends uh, who love Vegas, and but that could just be a thing, you know, that I think certain kinds of writers or artsy type people, they feel self-conscious about going to Vegas because they know it's sort of an air quotes, low culture place. I mean, when you think about it, everyone I know who like has lived there or done a residency there, like they don't, they only go to the strip to work and they go right back out of the strip. So it's like, are Hmm. we talking about the Times Square of Las Vegas or the couple different Times Squares of Las Vegas where no local would go? Right. Yeah. Disgusting. And that's not what I think of when I think of New York. I don't think of Times Square, but, but, but tourists do. And I wonder if we're falling into that same thing. We might be, but you were you were starting on sort of talking about the poverty that's there, and I've I've seen a little bit of that, and you see some hustlers on the strip or mm-hmm. on Fremont Street, but then you also like I know people from Kansas who have a holiday home in Vegas. They have an apartment that they use twice a year, so there must be rows and rows of empty apartments for upper up, upwardly mobile people from the provinces, right? And then there's probably like people who read books and go to bookstores and like Vegas or sort of put up with Vegas. Yeah, again, it's it's this stereotype. Thing because I sort of bristle when people make fun of Kansas for very obvious reasons. So I'm wondering if maybe we're making fun of obvious Vegas things that Vegas people would push back a bit against. So yeah, you- it's hitting me. It's hitting me that we're definitely doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. We're only talking about the public experience of Vegas and right. not the actual experience of Vegas. But maybe that's what we should be talking about because no one's. You know, it's like when you say like I'm American, like oh, you don't think like 
Mexicans are also from America and South right. America is also a part yeah. of America. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not saying that. Everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say America. Can- Canadians don't say I'm also American. Right. Yeah. Um, we meet it's shorthand for United States of America. So yeah, no. this also Vegas is like we mean the tourist Vegas. Well, yeah, there's Vegas as metaphor and there's Vegas as a place that has, you know, people who work for the city and plan streets and figure out where the how the trash gets picked up and stuff like that. Um, and maybe a creative travel writer would like embed himself with the garbage crew or something like that. I'm curious, yeah. have you, like you've been part of the Rogan entourage. You've been there as a comedian. Have you made any effort to get outside of that strip Fremont Street bubble? Or do you think you've always been a tourist in Vegas? No, I have done it. I have okay. One, I remember once in with Rogan. He he's a big pool player. Okay. And there was some local pros, and we went uh, to play at this at this I don't know some some pool hall, and it was like you know a twenty minute drive away from the strip, and it was like oh this is like just sort of a dingy city that spreads on that sprawls like forever with like their two story buildings and warehouses and just like didn't seem dangerous, but it also didn't seem inviting. Right. Um, I knew some poker players who lived in a house together, kind of like influencers, and they just played video poker all day. Right. Uh, and they they were outside the, that Las Vegas, and I and then I've gone like on hikes. Uh, I was there for that week mm. at the Riv, and I was like, I I had a car, so I was like, let me go to the Hoover Dam. Right. Um. But you know, I was a tourist in almost all of it. I didn't have a local coffee shop five miles off the strip. Right. Is Valley of Fire State Park? Is that the place you were thinking of? Is that the where you went hiking? Let me look. Um, I, I mentioned that because I, I've been there a handful of times. Once I was living in a van. Once I was with a with a documentary film crew, and we couldn't get into some horrible ghost bar on the Strip. And then uh, I think like a couple of times I've just been staying there intermediately. But then when I was researching my book uh, for souvenir, I went to a souvenir convention um, and I did a side trip to. That's big there. That's big there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a whole other layer. Um, and just, to, just to, to finish my thought, I went to Valley of Fire State Park and it was sort of cool. So there actually is good hiking near Vegas. Um, it, it was Red Rock, Red Rock National Park. Red Rock National Park. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so have you ever been there in a convention since or like, or like can be com- comedian conventions? Cause there's conventions for everything. I was there for the SEMA auto parts show in 2003 and then for the, like the national souvenir vendors convention in 2016. And like there's porn conventions in Vegas and there are exactly. corporates, right? Mm-hmm. And so have you ever had access to that side of the city? I've actually been to hotels and stuff where a convention is happening. Yeah. And oh, yeah. those are fun. Cause like, who are these people? Are these self-actualization people are these like uh child beauty pageant people are the you know and they're right, all yeah. there for that thing you know um the, the the golf equipment convention you know it's just like who are they i like to appear in once in a while but it, yeah i saw i went to travel con in memphis last year and there was also sort of like a competitive cheerleading for eight-year-olds competition and so there's like you know, eight-year-old girls with full makeup. And I mean, you know, it didn't seem, it, it seemed, uns- it seemed startling because I never see like dance competitions among grade yeah. schoolers wearing full makeup yeah. and stuff. But it was just, I guess that's, that could be 
a genuine travel experience. You know, you might wander to the 20th arrondissement of Paris to try and discover something that you never see before. But at that time in Memphis, I was able to see like competitive dance for eight years old, eight year olds, most of whom are from Texas that I don't usually see. So maybe that's one thing that you can see in Vegas is just. Yeah. It's just like there's so much around it that, but it's like has nothing to do with the city. It just happens to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a layer. That's another layer of Vegas. You have like sort of the the strip layer, which is more upscale. You have the Fremont Street, which is more working class. You have these conventions, which mm-hmm. overlaps with both of them. And then you have these people, you know, living in their holiday house or in their neighborhoods, or maybe the now infuriated uh, podcast listener who who really does really adore a section mm-hmm. of Vegas that nobody goes to. Um, there must be. There must be a hip, hipster version of Vegas where I where I would love. There yeah. must be. It's a real city. There, there must be a section that I've just never been. Well, yeah, like a place with I don't know poetry readings or or you know some maybe bookstores and right yeah some bookstores some coffee shops some some hip restaurants yeah you know yeah yeah it's just like everywhere I go when I get an Airbnb instead of the hotel by the venue I always look like where do the hipsters live in Kansas City where do the hipsters yeah. live in Tucson and it's like and there's a neighborhood there's usually three or four neighborhoods. Oh, and I'm, and I'm sure um, there is one in Vegas. And I feel like when I was living in a van in 1994 and having my weird experience sneaking past Blue Ribbons into casinos, I would have loved that part of Vegas, actually. <laughs> I was looking – like that vision I had about the, uh, the, the place we call Jeff's or put a reader board sign and it changes its name every time somebody new walks in and it, they hand out warm beer. Like, like that's part of Vegas maybe exists somewhere, you know, where the hipsters are and it, they're just a little bit more relaxed about it. Or I could be wrong. I don't know. Since Vegas, uh, you know, became a gambling town, since its Rat Pack era, gambling is popular everywhere. I I don't have to travel very far Mm -hmm. in Kansas to go to a casino. It's tribal casinos. And so economically, that has been great for indigenous North Americans. um, That economically, basically, um, the hemorrhaging of gullible casino people uh, to casinos is propping up uh, indigenous economies in North America. And certainly that's a huge, huge, huge part of how Vegas or Atlantic city and other places work. Um, yeah. It's so profitable that it'll make a fucking small reservation casino in central Washington money. Yeah. That's how profitable Vegas is just by somewhat of an association with it. As an aside, have you ever performed at a tribal casino Uh, or is that like a level of comedy that you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and you think you're being badass by like making a joke about it, but then you just realize it's just like there's just some people on the board that are tribal. It's not like it's, it's really not owned by by them at all. It's just investors. Huh. Um, it's just like any casino. Foxwoods, I think, in Connecticut is tribal. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That was um, one of the original ones. And, and yeah, no, there's there's plenty in Kansas now. If you want to gamble, you don't have to go very far. Yeah, it's weird. So then, why, why do you even go to Vegas anymore? And then I think Vegas responds to that realization by like we're going to give you the hottest nightclubs we're going to give you the biggest shows you know all the big djs are there there's that too there's that version of vegas too in that strip where it's like no no i'm just here for music i wonder if like obviously there's a gambling and entertainment industry that's huge in vegas but i wonder if there's like manufacturing or something where they decided that vegas is an appealing place that people would like to move to to work the assembly line because it has good comedy good music and casinos and stuff what do you think vegas does have that because of that convention and that thing they they do have high level musicians and 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 stuff going on 
So if you are like looking for a city or a place to move your Amazon the headquarters or some big company, yeah. In that sense, like the culture comes there. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably pretty cool if you're a music fan. You, everybody big is going to hit Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, before we were recording, um, we talked about the idea of what makes a place livable or how are you going to make life choices so that your life is enjoyable as opposed to the, the sort of following some rainbow that has been prepared for you by American culture. Well, obviously, Vegas is a pot of gold at the end of some American culture rainbows. But I'm just wondering if you could find the good life there. Like if if one could live there and have an affordable life that involves hiking and good con- concerts and good comedy. Yeah. I guess this is sort of a question that we all have as travelers. I mean, you go to Amsterdam and you think, what would it li- be like for if I lived here? You go to Paris, you go to some little village in Ecuador and think, what would it be like if I tried to live here? And mm-hmm. I guess inevitably you ask that question about Vegas. I mean, if you, Ari Shafir, the comedian, moved to Vegas, um, yeah. what do you think your life would be like there? I could, I, there's no way I could live on the, in the Strip or near old Vegas. There's no way. Right. I mean, I have friends that do cruise ships. And then they either go, there's two directions. They either start reading and working out and using the track for running right. or full alcoholic. Yeah. Because you're stuck in this fake small town with, with no ability to leave the town. Right. Um, Vegas would be the same way. Either you would go full in, fear and loathing style, or you would just never, you would just go to your gig, go at the back door entrance, leave and go back to your, to your home and your community. Right. I think it would be the latter for me. Right. Just find a hipster place. Where would you go? I would probably get someplace at the edge of town. Um, yeah. Do a, do a lot of desert hikes, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I like my Kansas life so much. It's just it's in the country, and I I can I can stay to myself. So the idea of being in any city for a long period of time doesn't appeal to me because I I like country life. But um, I I was raised by a farm girl who was adverse to to spending money. And so I always feel very anxious when I'm in a gambling environment. And so I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like I might occasionally go for church cheap food. You know, I know that there's some people who go to Vegas for the prime rib, for example, or the buffets. You know, I think that there's sort of, for lack of a better word, an obesity de- uh, demographic. Well, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I live, I, I, one of the bigger towns in central Kansas is not too far from me. It's a town of 50,000 people. And a lot of farmers come in to eat the, at the buffet restaurant here. I think there's a certain demographic of, a, of Americans who see buffets as a good deal, you know? Um, and it goes back generations. You know, like your farmer from western Kansas will come to central Kansas twice a year to eat at the buffet and maybe Vegas once a year. Um, and so if I lived in Vegas, yeah, I might do that every once in a while. I might ironically go to the strip, but I just think I'm, I'm, I'm so adverse. Like gambling is such a pursuit of people who are bad at math. You know, it's people. I went, the first time I went, one of the first times I went, I went with a group of guys, went for March Madness and gambled, you know, $5, nothing major on <laughs> right. every game, the over right. under or the point spread. So we don't have to know anything. Right. We bet on the women's, um, 16, I mean, one versus 16 seed, right. um, it was like, can Colgate cover the 47-point spread? Like, let's hope they can. It's like it's just right. like, it was just fun and stupid. But then when we were playing at the tables, the one guy that was an engineer was like, no, nah, I don't play. Like, why? You got a problem? Because no, I just, I know the math of it. It's, yeah. why would you, it, it, you're, you're supposed to lose. Why would you go, why would you do that? 
Well, that ties into my essay too, is that somehow I was very cynical and anxious in Vegas until I won $30 and then $60. And suddenly I had this religious attitude towards my own destiny as a lucky person, air quotes, lucky person. <laughs> yep. Do you feel lucky like professionally? Because um, when I was studying to be a writer, there was a time when I thought I'd be a screenwriter and I was studying Steven Soderbergh, who actually made a Las Vegas movie, Ocean's Eleven and its sequels. And he said that tal- talent plus perseverance equals luck. Um, so do you agree with that equation? And do you think luck has come into play in your, in your decade spanning comedy career? Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, the other version of that quote is success has many mothers, but failures are bastards. Huh? Okay. Um, but you can always point to the one reason that like it didn't happen for you with this guy, you know, jumped in front of me in line. I was late for this meeting. I would have been big. It's just point is one thing where it's like to get ahead, you need a lot of people giving you a hand up right. over and over and over again. So, yeah, I have been very lucky, but also you work hard. The other people got my same luck that didn't. And it's like, but yeah, the odds are deep, deep that I would have quit after six months, huh? you know, huh. and definitely after five years. So this is extremely like I beat the odds, right? you know, and it's not because I'm innately so talented based on nothing. You, you do some work. I mean, I mean um, um, Shepard Ferry says like, you want to say like um, any sort of like creative thought is is the, in the movie version is you wake up and you have a song in your head you got to jot it down, right? You know, but the reality is you sit in a locked office for eight hours a day and push it, right? It, it's it doesn't just bestow on you from the gods, you have to mine it out. So yeah, I mean I've been lucky, but for sure, for sure. I mean even just driving to the lap factory to find a job and then passing by the comedy store which became my home, which I had never even heard of. And I was like, oh, there's a comedy club right there. If I had taken a different street, I wouldn't have passed that. Hmm. You know, and my whole life would be different. Yeah, I think that there's these Russian nesting dolls of luck that one thing leads to another. Those failures let her have another nesting doll that have luck involved with them. Because, like, I just read you a, a Vegas essay that I experienced in 94, tried to write in 95, 96 as part of a failed book um, that I f- was part of my mid-20s crisis when I thought I had failed in life, that eventually became my first byline for Salon, which eventually, like three years after that, I got my vagabonding book contract. And so it feels like even what I read to you just now is a part of the hard work that underpinned what I now see as luck, right? So that email that my high right. school history teacher forwarded to his former student Random House, that wouldn't have existed had I not failed to write a book and then used one of the chapters as a Vegas essay for Salon, which led to other writing, which led to other exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, a thousand percent. Like it, it's, it's not, you have to have done the work. I mean, let's, let's say as a few, let's say Tim, or even personally, forget career wise. Yeah. You and I are friends because my agent, despite him trying to talk me out of leaving town for fucking four to six months, I was leaving and he goes, Hey, there's a book I, you should take. Huh. So he's not going to give me a, a book that sucked. Right. You know what I mean, right. Yeah. You had to have written a really good book that became the Bible for fucking pieces of shit. who want to leave society. <laughs> <laughs> but like, and then also I might have just abandoned it in, in Myanmar, but I kept with me until I was in Cambodia. I was like, let me break this thing out. It's also lucky. It's a small book or I wouldn't have taken it with me. Right. You know, or if he hadn't done the math and realized it had to be paperback or forget it, I don't need the weight. Yeah. Um, 
So it's like, sure, that's that's lucky. But also, what if I had abandoned Myanmar and and some guy who went on to like start a tech company found it huh. and was like, I need you to be the man. You know what I mean? So it's luck the other way. You don't know what you missed. Yeah. I need you to be our head writer. I'm going to give you $10 million a year to be on staff. Right. It's like, oh, that'd be cool. You know, but like, and you didn't get that because some fucking idiot kept the book with them. Right. Damn you, Ari. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's weird to think about. Like, I often, uh, like, you and Tim Ferriss are the big, you, you've sent me these large numbers of audience people just th- thanks to your own enthusiasm about the book. Um, and I actually didn't know that it was your agent who gave it to you. But I sometimes wonder about, like, the, the moments that led Tim Ferriss to my book, had he been in the wrong section of the bookstore or however it happened. That would have been tens, maybe hundreds of thousands fewer readers than I would have had before. Tim Ferriss, if he came across any of my columns from the University of Maryland, he's going to be like, oh, weird and then just move on right right yeah. it's yeah, not yeah. just the fact that it was exposed that tim ferris was the only thing we needed it yeah. was more than that there was also hard work and toil that went into what you wrote and and yeah. I, I mean yeah it's, it all comes together i think it was some golfer he got lucky out of a out of a bunker and somebody's like man you really got lucky out of the bunker and he just laughed and he's like it's, it's so funny that the more i practice it seems like the luckier i get huh huh yeah <laughs> You know, like no one can accept, like, I've worked on that shot for, for, for six months. I worked on that shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a hard shot, but it's not like I'm just stepping up like a nobody. Yeah. There's another uh, scenario under which somebody ran into, oh, Dolly or Picasso. I think it was Picasso in a cafe and said, oh, hey, hey, can you draw me something on a napkin? And he draws him a little something and he says, okay, give me a million dollars. And they're like, but this took you two seconds. And it's like, yeah, but I've spent my whole career getting the expertise and becoming Picasso, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So there's a lot of metaphors for this. And in a way, this ties back into the Vegasness of this conversation because Vegas is predicated on an idea of luck that doesn't have anything to do with doing the hard work, unless maybe you're a professional gambler or something. True, and then, and then it is hard work. And then you get lucky here or there, but those people don't from what, you know, I used to be into poker a lot and, and, and all the pros are like, they don't care if they got into a hand that there are 90% to win. And somebody hit like two cards in a row on the, on the turn in the river that let them win. There's, they're like, no, I played it right. Gosh, you could almost be the title of this episode, like earned luck, you know, but that, that really Vegas, uh, it's sort of a satire of the idea that of, of 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 unearned luck. That luck is something that falls into your lap. And I think Vegas and any casino, including the tribal casinos that you may have performed at, um, sounds like you're peeling carrots now, Ari. Are you peeling carrots? Uh, sorry, no. <laughs> I'm spritzing this wandering zoo plant that I showed you before. <laughs> Damn, that picked up so well. I can barely hear it. <laughs> That's funny. And as an aside, um, my my parents say hi. Just so my listeners know, my, my uh, parents nice. my parents put a wandering Jew in their assisted living facility, and they they were saying, "Don't you have that Jewish comedian friend? What what do you think he thinks? Is is it racist to say wandering Jew?" What was the question about this plant? What, well, it's, it's historically it's been called a wandering Jew, but uh, I think they changed it to something else that's a little more politically correct. Do you know which what it would be? So the question, Ari, is can we still call this plant a wandering Jew or has wandering Jew been canceled? So we sent a video (laughs) message to to Ari and he sent a he very generously sent a very funny video message back. Hello, Potses. Potses? Potses? What's the plural of pots? Pots and pants. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Pots and Pants. Uh, I say that the wandering Jew, the name still lives. 
It's the one plant that's named after us, and they 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 didn't ask to take away that from us. It was our it was our greatest heritage. So I say continue with calling it that. However, some people have changed it to the Wandering Dude. I do not subscribe by that. Uh, this here is the Wandering Jew that I brought back from the Amazon in Ecuador. I picked out wild from the Amazon and now I potted it and it's thriving, just like our people here in New York City. So I think it's great that you have a Wandering Jew going in your living space right now. <laughs> yeah, we reclaimed it from the Amazon. It was the one thing I took back from the Amazon and it lives on. That's awesome. They're so resilient. Yeah, they're so resilient. We picked them wild out there, and now they're just like in my in my window. Uh, but I just nervously when I'm talking, I'll just spritz it with water because it needs mist. Do it, do it. Yeah, it'll it'll just be this the special um, sound texture, the, the, the real life, the, the Ari multitasking episode of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Yeah. Is is there something Ari I haven't brought up? Is there a layer of Vegas that I have missed entirely just because I have a very cheapskate uh, borderline relationship with Vegas? Is there anything? That well, no, that's the thing. It's like I, I think as we talked about this, we realized that, that Vegas, that what we're thinking of Vegas is is just this famous version of Vegas. It bears some like questioning. What do you mean when you say Vegas? Right. Um, you mean the Strip or that version of it, the tourist Vegas? So, so all this in mind, since we figured out that we actually know Vegas pretty well, while at the same time knowing it not at all. Very <laughs> little, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know the small, the one percent of it very well. So and feel like feel like we're winners. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. We we have the same cynical uh, response to the one percent that a lot of people already have. Um, so keep what what kind of advice might we give to our fellow one percenters or for, for our fellow tourists? Well, the rule was always you, three days is the most you could go, hmm. like no longer. But if you want to do that other thing, like find a cool part of Vegas with local shows and 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 like we say, coffee shops and and restaurants and bookstores, yeah, maybe you could go longer. It, it is a nice way to get out of the cold. It's a warm, dry city, so maybe it's like. And it's also advice for myself is find that other part. Yeah, stay forty minutes away and then drive in for the for the concert. It, it could even be a psychogeographical exercise going back onto something we talked about in Paris. The idea mm-hmm. that, okay, I'm going to explore Vegas, but I'm not allowed to set foot on the strip or on Fremont street for, for four days. I can't even drive through them. I have to go around. Right. Them. And then oh, as, that's funny. Yeah. as you find a way into Vegas that does not involve the obvious places, like no museums, no casinos, no fancy restaurants, and you try and find the hipster version of Vegas, the dirtbag version of Vegas, something like that. I know maybe? what Wise Guys Comedy Club. They have a Salt Lake City, and then they expand it. And they have Vegas. It's a small room. It's like a two hundred seat room. Yeah. It's a real comedy club, not in that part of Vegas. Yeah, and so they'll bring in like regular regional headliners, and yeah. not like these national like old names. So maybe for local people in Las Vegas, or do you think tourists make Absolutely, their way out there? Absolutely, for locals. Okay. Huh. A, a few tourists if you have it, but no one's going there for a club get, a date. No one's going to like make a flight for that. Right. You make a flight for the casino gate date. Right. But the locals are like, yeah, they'll rather go out to a place like that because it's like, I don't want to, it's parking sucks. And like, oh, yeah. I don't want to get in. And like, parking probably does not suck, actually. They'll probably make sure you park for free. Right. Take your money. But like, they don't want to go into, into, into that shitty Fremont and, 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 and the Strip. So, like, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that would be good psychogeography. Don't even drive through it. Right. That's how you lose $500. Exactly. No, I think this, is, this model of Vegas is all travel writ large. That any city you go to, 
that you get excited about, there's going to be a local person who's rolling their eyes. Like once I went to, <laughs> I went to Cleveland to see a baseball game in uh, Indians back when they were called the Indians versus the Royals. And uh, I went to a bar afterwards and I was talking to a guy how I went to the rock and roll museum and he was almost visibly pissed that I went there. Like it was such a cliche thing for a non Cleveland person to go to the rock and roll museum. Um, and so I'm sure even people who try really hard to be a good uh, flaneur or psychogeographer are inevitably going to be in this force field of obviousness wherever they go. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like you you, you can't take anyone's word for it that the strip sucks. Uh, that if you're like probably if you're a listener of Rolf Potts podcast or a reader of his book, you're you're not gonna like the strip. Hmm. It's not for you, but you're gonna have to see for yourself because to take someone's word for it is also like. You also, there's some joy in seeing what you're missing. Just staring at everybody, like, look at these losers, look at these winners, look at these people trying to do this or that. You do want to observe it at least once. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to my 1998 Vegas essay and Ari Shafir's upcoming comedy shows, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs> <laughs>